Welcome to the Marlboro College Center for New Leadership podcast. My name is Hillary Boone, and today I've got a great guest, David Grant. We love David here at the Center for New Leadership. He is one of our core consultants, and he also leads one-day workshops that kick off both our certificate and nonprofit management program and our board leadership institute. So David, why don't you kick us off just by telling us a little bit about what you do? All right, thanks. Uh, I'm, I live in Stratford, Vermont, and at this stage of my life, I'm um, freelancing and working with mission-driven organizations around the country, doing uh, some strategic planning with them, but uh, also, sort of, more often than not, I'm working on assessment systems. And assessment systems are a major component of your workshop. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and what assessment systems you use? Well, sure. I mean, in, in some ways, I... Um, I'm in the mental model business, Hillary, which is to say that I think most people think about assessment in a particular way, and I'm not sure it does them any good. I um, I think we come by it very naturally because we all went to school, and so I think we view assessment as something that comes at the end of a chapter or a course, a book, a unit, and then gives us a grade, looks back and sort of, you know, how do we do? And so I think we we have deep in our bones, we associate it with work that's already happened, and we figure the point of the assessment is to tell us whether we won or lost. And um, and so I, I really uh, believe that there's a, a different way to do it, and um, that's the way coaches use assessment. It's the way teachers of performing arts use assessment, and it's to um, look at work that's yet to happen and be very clear about criteria for success and to essentially find a way to coach and give feedback and have the whole emphasis be on constant improvement of work. Great. And in your book, The Social Profit Handbook, you spend a fair amount of time introducing rubrics. Can you maybe um, just explain what rubrics are and why they are a good tool for this sort of assessment in nonprofits? Well, sure, and and you're right to call it a tool. It it um, in other words, it's not the point. It's a tool to help you kind of get at the point. The point uh, being that if you get it if you work out an assessment system where the focus is on constant improvement, then uh, then you sort of you know you do things differently. You spend time together differently. You actually think about the whole process of assessment differently, and you need a tool that literally holds the conversation for you. And that's why I like the rubric. You know, it's funny, Hillary, um, most kindergartners and first graders, second graders recognize rubrics. Elementary school teachers use them all the time. And they're just ways to be clear about, you know, what what it looks like, what good work looks like along a spectrum. And if you're at one stage, what the next stage looks like. And somehow or other uh, in our education system, we sort of stop using them. And we don't use them in high school and college and graduate school. And so, you know, my first half of my career was as a teacher, so I was familiar with with rubrics. And then I got to the to kind of a deep dive into the social sector when I became president of the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation down in New Jersey. And I, I was aware that that nobody used that tool. None none of the organizations Dodge supported used that tool to sort of help them be clear about what they were trying to do, very specifically what they were trying to do and get feedback on how they were doing and bring others in on the conversation of, of, of what uh, social profit looked like for them, which was their whole point of their being. And so I, so I introduced the idea, essentially an educational tool, the rubric, into this conversation about assessment in the social sector. That was almost 20 years ago now. And, um, you know, it's really, it's really caught on. A lot of, um, a lot of organizations uh, use it, I think, uh, happily. And, and then, as you mentioned, I wrote a book about it. It came out last year 
called the Social Profit Handbook and uh, give lots of examples of organizations that have used this fairly simple tool to uh, sort of get get everybody on the same page about what they're trying to do. We, you know, you, you mentioned to actually briefly describe it, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell the people who are listening to this to just picture a matrix, just picture those boxes there, and on one axis, let's say down the left-hand side, you simply list your criteria for success. Whatever it is you're you're interested in doing, what are your criteria for success? And then along the other axis, just imagine a spectrum from poor to fair to good to excellent. You can name it whatever you want, but you recognize that against your key criteria, there are always areas where you fall short, where you're doing pretty well, where where you are uh, striving and, and doing better than ever. And even at the top of the rubric where you're being very aspirational, just, you know, with your colleagues saying, what is it that we would just love to see happen? And it's amazing to me how just that simple process of coming together around that aspirational vision can help bring it about. I was definitely in elementary school when rubrics were really big. And um, I remember I really strongly disliked them at that time. And so I read your book and I thought, okay, well, I'm not a fan of the rubric when I, when I started reading. Um, and what really won me over and made me a big proponent of the rubric actually in the nonprofit is the idea that you're co-creating this with your team um, and that That's you're... Right. You're defining together what success looks like, and I um, I really appreciate that that visionary component of not only what what do we want to be doing, but what does that look like? If we're doing our jobs really well, what is the experience of that? And that feels so different than you know having someone prescribe it from above. That that's right. I mean, my my guess is that you probably didn't like the rubric because it was a, a teacher handed it to you and said, you know, here it is. It's just sort of another way to say, here's how you'll fail. <laughs> here's what I want, as opposed to um, having the the rubric be uh, sort of a format, a template for a conversation with everybody involved. The communal nature of this, the collaborative nature of a good rubric, is that everybody's in on it and then they 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 own and support uh, the result exactly um so you've used the term the social profit here and you you actually use that term in your book um what does social profit mean and why do you use it well you know i i use it for a couple of reasons um one is that i i really want to remind people what the whole sector the social sector sometimes called the nonprofit sector is about and i think the word nonprofit is is a, it's very flat you know it sort of tells you what it isn't and it's almost sort of um like for profit you know there's where the action is and here's not for for profit and so i i think that uh for one thing i'd like to elevate this activity and remind people that it's not about financial profit it's about social profit which um the world needs in many ways I also think that um, if you remind people that the the point of the missions of all these great organizations is social profit, you can take them out of the sort of starvation mode that that is implied by nonprofit. In other words, if you if you work in the sector for a long time, as as I have and you have, you you notice that most organizations that we call nonprofits, and I, I call them social profits, are operating on a shoestring. And the system seems to expect that. 
In other words, let's say they manage beautifully and have a surplus. Then they actually have funders who say, well, they must not need me anymore. <laughs> and so, and and then uh, perversely, if you find somebody who's um, just doing a great job running a complicated social profit organization, and they make a decent salary, you'll have people actually sort of act as if they're hypocrites. Well, you know, I thought you were mission driven. Well, you can see what that does is that it, it impoverishes and burns out the people we need to run high-performing, mission-driven organizations. So I, I, I like social profit for all its um, positive connotations. For, just from the point of view of, of assessment, I like the fact that it begs the question of measurement. Because, you know, when, almost whenever I talk about social profit, people will, will say something like, oh, but you can't measure that. Right. And if you're looking at this as a social profit, the next question is, okay, well, how do you measure that? And, and, and how do we know if we are creating that kind of profit, if we're seeing that sort of gains? Um, I work a lot with the results-based accountability uh, framework, and we're, we're always looking for measures that get to the heart of, um, is anybody better off because of your program? Not how many people did you serve, but really, can we come up with a measure that captures a change in attitude, behaviors? Did somebody learn something? Are, are they better off because this program exists? That's right. One of the, the kind of crusades I'm on in the social profit uh, handbook is to say that we have this um, assumption that measurement means numbers. If you say the word measurement, people are expecting a number. And then, and then we uh, funders do this all the time. They say, they'll say, show me the numbers. I want the numbers. Government agencies do it all the time. Your success measures, your metrics are numbers, whereas the things that matter most to us often resist quantification. And so I, um, <laughs> I try to say um, quantitative assessment gives you a number, and qualitative assessment uses words. And the more precise you are with the words, the more clear you can be about the impact you're having. So David, we often open our cohort programs with, with your classes, and one thing that we haven't touched on that comes up a lot is the idea of organizational life cycles. So I, and I, I, I consider it a great privilege to be able to do the uh, first workshop in that series because um, you know it really is about how people are thinking about their leadership role. And um, I like to combine uh, life cycles and assessment. They, they're very related, but I, I think that they're two fundamental Mental, mo mental models that really help you, whether you're a staff member or a board member of a social profit organization. And maybe you can just say a few words about life cycles. Well, you know, I I've been very influenced by um, uh, this terrific book called Nonprofit Life Cycles by Susan Stevens. And um, she's become a friend. In fact, she, write, she wrote the foreword to, um, to my book. And she She's not the only one who does this, but I think she does the best job of it, where she asks you to think about um, organizations the same way we think about human beings, which is that they've got um, stages of development. And we, we completely get that with human beings, that, that here's an infancy and a childhood and adolescence and young adulthood and a adulthood and aging, etc. And um, they're very um, predictable challenges with each of those stages. And, and we sort of have a sense of what it means to successfully move from childhood to adulthood and the like. Well, she says, let's do the same thing with organizations. 
and recognize that a, a startup is very different from an organization that we might call mature and that it really is helpful for us and the people who are in organizations to sort of describe what are those developmental stages. And she goes way back even before the organization exists to the idea itself. Somebody had an idea that the world needs something that it doesn't have. And there are way more ideas than, than become organizations. But the ones that do enter this startup stage and, um, you know, there are very uh, specific things that you need from leaders of startup, both staff and board. And, you know, their, their job is really different than it's going to be if they're still around five, ten years later. So what I do in that in that workshop, Hillary, is to help people find themselves on their own developmental curve. Some of the organizations that work with, uh, that respond to the Marlboro uh, program are startups, but most of them are in early growth or in growth stage. And um, some of them are still operating under their founders. And with life cycles, you realize that, um, you know, there's a moment, a huge, big deal moment in the growth stage when the founder leaves. And it, it's uh, Susan Stevens says it's the equivalent of human adolescence because you know that it's a, it's a vulnerable period. It's a period of disequilibrium. Um, and organizations, uh, if, they, if they know what's coming and can understand it and prepare for it, can actually use that moment to make them even stronger and help them go into a, a, a later part of a growth stage and even approach maturity, which you can't do under your founder. You can sort of see that um, there's some benefits here that have to do with looking closely, understanding who you are, why you exist, uh, sort of what are your strengths and weaknesses? Are you, um, are you developing in a sort of coherent way or a haphazard way? So, um, so anyway, I, I, um, we, do, we do a case study in this. We, we talk through, and my goal is, that, is um, diagnostic. People say, where are we and wh what do we do next? And, um, of course, I link it to assessment because one of the administrative systems you need to grow up and be at your best as an organization is an assessment system that constantly makes you better. So organizational life cycles, is it really – is it, is it linear? Are people moving from early stages to maturity or do they cycle back through? Does that change over time with an organization? Uh, well, this is where there's a little different from human beings, which is that um, uh, organizations, uh, there is a linear from startup to gr early growth to growth to maturity, but there, there's always decline. And organizations can decline at any point, and they can decline and go right to terminal, just out of business, or they can decline and turn around. And what often happens is that an organization will get through a startup phase, begin to grow, and decline in some way, and it'll turn around, but it'll go back to a slightly earlier stage of its existence. You'll have some organizations that, that actually get mature, but then they get complacent and they decline and they have to go back and almost reinvent themselves, we'll go back to the growth stage. You can picture that as sort of a, sort of a curve, a turnaround curve that puts you back on the, on the, on the uh, life cycle um, graph at a little bit earlier stage. And I imagine as a leader, just having the perspective or that mental model of what what organizational stage you're at is incredibly helpful about knowing what you should be focusing on, the kind of resources you should be pulling in around you and where you need to be going. It, it absolutely right. And I would add one more dimension to that. I think it's very helpful because it depersonalizes 
the sort of weaknesses and challenges that every organization faces at different stages. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times where, you know, an organization will be struggling and the executive director thinks it's her fault or the board chair is going, oh, if only I were a better board chair, we wouldn't be having this <laughs> struggle. <laughs> Ed, what you really say is, no, you are right in the middle of the growth stage and the challenge of the growth stage is constantly you're trying you're struggling trying to do um, too much with too few resources you're trying to sort of define your distinctive uh, competence in a world that sometimes want you wants you to do things that are not your mission they want you they want you to come over and do their mission and so uh, and and then uh, personnel there's always that moment in an organization where you move from a, a, a staff of generalists everybody does everything to where you start to specialize and they're growing pains there. And unless you know that, you could think you're a bad manager or that somebody somebody's um, just sort of um, not paying attention. Well, pay attention to what's actually going on, which is that you're growing up. I was looking at the curriculum for your courses, and I noticed that theory of change and mission time come up. And how do those play in? In, in that first session that where we talk about life cycles and uh, assessment, I always try to stop about a half an hour before the end and do a reality check. And I ask people, well, what gets in the way of this work? Because theory is sort of pure and you can imagine yourself, hey, I see where I am on my life cycle and, and I embrace formative assessment and I'm just going to do it with all my colleagues and our clients and our donors and I'm, I'm just we're just going to get better and better. And then I go, well, wait a minute, what gets in the way? And people always, you know, we can you can spend 10 minutes on that question, or you can spend three hours on that question. And you always come back to two things. One of them is time, where people don't, they don't actually think they have time to do the kind of work that I've just described. And the other is change, which is to say resistance to change. So I, I feel like, um, you know, while we're talking about mental models, that we, we should have, uh, we should have mental models about those two words too, how we handle time and how we handle, how we think about change. The central chapter in my book is called Mission Time, Chapter 4, Mission Time. And um, I've become convinced that the kind of crazy busyness that we have in resource-strapped organizations actually uh, keeps us from getting better in the way that formative assessment allows us to. Because you have to slow down and actually have a conversation about what it is that you're trying to do and what it is, what it is you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Because if you haven't had that conversation... You, you, you're spinning all the time. Everything that comes your way is sort of up for uh, debate and, and decision. So what, what I do is I actually refer to this sturdy old uh, matrix that Stephen Covey wrote about in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the urgent, important matrix, where, where he says that, you know, just imagine that things are either important or not important. They're either urgent or not urgent. And that gives you four boxes in a matrix. And you say, well, where do you live? And Everybody, everybody who works at a social profit organization lives in quadrant one. Important work, but urgent. Always feels urgent, mostly mostly feels late. And then when they're not, and that's the burnout quadrant. And if they're not in quadrant one, they say they're in quadrant three, which in the Covey matrix is that it's not important to them, but it's urgent for somebody else. And that's that's the frustrating quadrant. And so we we you know we go back and forth between burnt out and frustrated. And, and Covey's point is that the, it's quadrant two, where you deal with important matters in a non-urgent way. 
that's uh, you know that that's where you, where you get better. And um, my, my uh, you know one of the one of the key takeaways for me in that workshop, that sort of first workshop I I do in the Marlboro series, is um, that leaders of organizations have to claim it and protect it, which is to say mission time. They have to set aside time for these non-urgent matters about their um, sort of core identity and their core things they want to do in the world, how they're going to do it, what success would look like, how they're going to get feedback on how they're doing, and that that saves them time in quadrant one later. It saves them that kind of burnout uh, business that, that, that they're very familiar with. And I really think that the biggest difference between the kind of good organizations and the great ones has to do with the way they use time together. I mean, that really resonates with me. I think that anyone who's working at a social profit, definitely you feel the difference between a day where you come in and you think about what you're going to accomplish and how that's going to go. And you, you know, you set expectations for yourself and you just knock out that work and that thinking and those days where you come in and you're a little tired and you just open up your email and, and you allow that to kind of dictate where you're going to be spending your time. What is, what's rolling in, who's walking in the door. Right. It's that discipline to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to come into this day with intentionality or this week with intentionality. And I don't know why it's hard to have that intentionality. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I I think it's cultural and, and uh, it's all about habits and, and sometimes our habits can be influenced by our vocabulary and sort of how, you know, how, what do we, how do we describe our meetings? How do we describe sort of, um, you know, our rituals during the day? And I think anything that can remind us of that kind of grounding in what's important that you were just describing is a great thing. And then there's a change. I remember running across uh, a book. It was back when I was um, in the school world. And it was a book about change in schools. Uh, and it's by a psychologist named Robert Evans, and um, it was called The Human Side of School Change. And he had this chapter about the psychological meaning of change. And, you know, I, I, I read this chapter and I've thought about change differently ever since. And he says that um, change always has four uh, psychological dimensions to it. One is loss, that we actually mourn the patterns of our lives that you know we're used to even even if they even if we know that intellectually we should change and do something different we we literally feel a sense of loss when we when we give up our patterns and then and then there's um the second one is um this feeling of incompetence that when you're in a workplace you sort of get in your routines and you feel like you know what's going to happen and you know how to do stuff and and Somebody comes back from some workshop and says, no, 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 we have to do it differently. <laughs> and it's no wonder those people are ignored or marginalized until they settle down because nobody wants to feel incompetent at work. And you feel incompetent if you, if, you, know, if you haven't done stuff yet, if you don't know. You know, rubric writing is a perfect example. You can get really good at writing rubrics pretty quickly, but you actually have to be willing to learn, to practice. And then the the third dimension uh, that he talks about about change is confusion. And I'm just reminded he he is very clear about this. Robert Evans is is that healthy human beings avoid confusion. Life is confusing enough, and so if you change something in in a system 
in all workplaces or systems, there are unintended consequences. You change something on Tuesday and then suddenly something on Thursday is different and you just go, couldn't we go back to the way we've always done it? <laughs> and then the fourth dimension is conflict. Really helpful for people who are leading organizations to know that you may have people on your staff kind of going at each other and you feel like, wow, how did it, how did it get so hot? And it's not about the new thing on the table. It's about some long-held grievance. You know, somebody got the parking space 10 years ago or somebody got the corner office. And so it's um, workplaces as families, workplaces as places where you have these sort of uh, grudges and resentments and, and that, um, that don't go away. They bubble beneath the surface and they look for a place to come out. And all that happens when change is on the horizon and healthy people avoid conflict. They avoid confusion. They avoid feeling incompetence. They avoid loss. And so no wonder there's resistance to change. That really helped me because I, I used to think early on that, you know, if people resisted to change, just didn't understand it or they were uh, stubborn or something. No, they're just being human. Well, David, we're running out of time. I was wondering if you might have a poem to share. Uh, well, you know, um, it, it, it's funny that you, you mentioned poetry because I, um, I do tend to include poetry in my workshops. And it's, it's partly because... I, I used to teach poetry. Um, probably a little bit more, it's because at the Dodge Foundation, I became immersed in the world of living poets. <laughs> you know, um, the uh, the Dodge Foundation r runs every two years the largest poetry festival in North America, and and so um, I got to uh, I got to sort of uh, to to meet the uh, sort of sort of the great, the great living poets, not and not just Americans, but from around the world. And one of them was uh, Billy Collins, who was the, you know, just did a stint as U.S. Poet Laureate. Well, I should say just maybe four or five years ago. And I like to, um, I like to close workshops with a poem by Billy Collins that, that there's a, the, the tone of it is sort of this um, feeling that's very much on my mind after a, you know, spending a day with people who are leading and governing uh, social profit organizations. So let me let me um, let me offer it to you right now. I have it right in front of me. His poem is called "As If to Demonstrate an Eclipse." I pick an orange from a wicker basket and place it on the table to represent the sun. Then, down at the other end, a blue and white marble becomes the Earth. And nearby, I lay the little moon of an aspirin. I get a glass from a cabinet, open a bottle of wine. Then I sit in a ladder-backed chair, a benevolent god presiding over a miniature creation myth. And I begin to sing a homemade canticle of thanks for this perfect little arrangement, for not making the earth too hot or cold, not making it spin too fast or slow, so that the grove of orange trees and the owl become possible, not to mention the rolling wave, the play of clouds, geese in flight, and the Z of lightning on a dark lake. Then I fill my glass again and give thanks for the trout, the oak, and the yellow feather, singing the world, singing the room full of shadows, as sun and earth and moon circle one another in their impeccable orbits, and I get more and more cockeyed with gratitude.
uh, one reason I, I just love that poem, aside from the fact that I know Billy Collins uh, loves good wine, is that the, this, um, this feeling of sitting back, looking at a little system there represented by his miniature creation myth, and, and realizing that in some ways that's what we're asking the people to do in our workshops is to sit back from the dailiness and the kind of hurriedness of their work and just imagine the system that is going to um, make uh, be, make them successful, create social profit to the world, not burn them out, and um, sort of fulfill the reason they're they're there to begin with. And and so um, when I think about just them devoting their lives to it, I I, I feel the I land on the last word of the poem, which is gratitude. And I can't imagine a better way to end the podcast than with that. So thank you so much, David, for joining me today. And for those of you out there listening, I hope you will come back next time.